my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict iron jaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That way. Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, your creepy informant Josh Baker, cover six new-to-me horror movies with a random spooky topic seven at the end. I wanted to remind you, beautiful listeners, that you can now send messages directly to blankisthekiller at gmail.com. Ask questions, explain why I'm wrong about something, or recommend a movie. I think a listener mail section could be fun. This episode features tribal cannibals, deadly guests, and time death. Come sit with me in this super sterile apartment as I regale you with some spooky film tidbits. Hopefully we don't get attacked by a giant swarm of cockroaches. Number 1, The Green Inferno, 2013, directed by Eli Roth. A group of college activists go to Peru to stop a company and a militia from deforesting a native tribe's territory. The activists get there, and the new girl, Justine, is held at gunpoint. Since her father is in the United Nations and everything is being streamed, the company has to stop. Justine realizes that the leader of the activist, Alejandro, planned for her to be at least held at gunpoint. The activists board a plane. The plane crashes. The survivors, including Justine and Alejandro, are captured by the tribe. The tribe starts killing and eating the captives one by one. Justine befriends one of the young boys in the tribe. Alejandro reveals the mission was pointless and just for publicity. He then shows his true douchebag colors. The tribe is prepping Justine for something because she's a virgin. The tribe boy frees Justine who runs and finds the militia fighting the tribe. The militia saves her. She tells them no one else survived. Later, Justine lies to some suits and says she was the only survivor of the plane crash and was found and saved by the tribe, who were not violent cannibals. A plane crash, militia, and the tribe are the killers. This is the last Eli Roth horror movie I had left to check out. I thought I wouldn't like it, but The Green Inferno was a fun time. I guess that means that overall, I like Eli Roth. Knock Knock is still one of the worst movies I've ever seen, but I found some level of enjoyment when watching all of his other movies. The Green Inferno stars Ross' now ex-wife, Lorenza Izzo, as Justine. I liked her performance. Eli Roth actually had real villagers play the tribe, which is why they are perfect. They had never seen a movie before, so Roth held a screening of Cannibal Holocaust for them, which they apparently found hilarious. Someday I'll probably get around to seeing Cannibal Holocaust, which heavily inspired this movie, but I don't really have much interest in watching it at the moment. The rest of the acting in The Green Inferno is fine, barring the guy who played Alejandro. Ariel Levy played him, and his performance was pretty terrible. 
I was pleasantly surprised to see Daryl Sabara, a.k.a. Juni Cortez from Spy Kids, in this. I was shocked to see part of grown-up Juni Cortez's ding-dong in a movie. Its inclusion is completely unnecessary, which makes the whole thing even weirder. It could have been a body double. Eli, why did you decide to partially put in a Spy Kids wiener in your movie? I guess someone's genitals had to be shown in some form or fashion, given how the Green Inferno starts off with Justine learning about the atrocities of female genital mutilation in one of her classes. I was sure that meant that we'd get some front and center female genital mutilation on screen, which would have raised the count of movies I've seen with it featured to a whopping two. Luckily, that didn't end up being the case. Which movie... Have I seen that includes it? Lars von Trier's Antichrist, of course. The gore that is shown in The Green Inferno is practical and fantastic. The husky boy in the group has his eyes and tongue removed before literally being turned into a torso. Since it's an Eli Roth film, the gore is brutal, grisly, and gratuitous. I mean that as a compliment. A pilot loses his head after it comes in contact with a branch. Junie ends up eaten alive, and a girl breaks a ceramic bowl and uses it to cut her own throat. The Green Inferno should satiate you gore fiends out there. For connoisseurs of terrible CGI insects, there's a part in the movie where an activist is swarmed by obviously CGI ants. It looks terrible. Junie is a stoner and ends up with a bag of the devil's lettuce. He comes up with a harebrained scheme to get the tribe high and shoves the weed into the girl that committed suicide's stomach. It's not a crazy big bag, but somehow it's enough wacky tobacco to get the whole tribe high on the drug-infused girl meat. The whole plan is literally referred to as a Scooby-Doo plan in the movie. There's no way the plan would actually work, but hey... It's a silly, wacky idea that someone wanted to have happen in the movie. The Green Inferno isn't trying to be a serious movie. Besides the Spy Kid Ding Dong and Scooby-Doo Reefer plan, there's a part in the movie where the captured activists are in a cage, and one of them has crazy diarrhea. It's absurd and definitely in the movie for comedic effect. For no reason, there is a part where Alejandro jacks it right after the girl slits her own throat. Well... I guess for shock value, as everyone who's familiar with Eli Roth knows, the man loves him some shock value, and that's basically what the Green Inferno is, a vessel for a bunch of shock value. The Green Inferno won't win you over if you don't like any of Eli Roth's other movies, but I recommend checking it out if you're a fan of Roth and or cannibals. Number 2, The Guest, 2014, directed by Adam Wingard. A guy named David shows up at the Peterson family home. He says he served in the military with their son and that they were good friends. David stays with the family and befriends the parents, son Luke, and daughter Anna. He beats up Luke's bullies and goes to a party with Anna. Anna overhears David on the phone and gets a bad vibe. She calls the military who inform her that David is dead. David buys some guns, murders the sellers, frames Anna's deadbeat boyfriend, helps the dad get a promotion by killing his boss, and stops Luke from being expelled at school. Luke tells David about Anna's suspicions and lets David know he doesn't care if he killed all those people since they're friends. The military police show up at the Peterson house. 
David kills the mom, dad, and all but one of the police. Anna is picked up by the last military policeman who tells her David was an experimental super soldier who escaped. David goes to kill Anna, her friend, and Luke to tie up loose ends. David kills Anna's friend, some people in a diner, and the military policeman, but is incapacitated by Anna and Luke. The siblings thought David was dead, but see him leave the scene of the crime in a firefighter uniform. David is the killer. First things first, whoever was in charge of the poster for the guest needs to be run out of the biz. The poster is one of the most uninspired pieces of garbage I've ever seen and in no way encapsulates the actual vibe of the movie. For years I've been passing over this movie solely due to how bland the terrible poster makes it look. The Guest isn't some drab movie where a military dude murders a family in a boring home. It's a hyper-stylized horror thriller that's drowned in color and synthwave. I'm a sucker for synthwaves, so even though the music didn't always fit what was happening on screen, I personally enjoyed it. I'd like to hear from someone who isn't particularly a fan of that genre of music's take on the soundtrack. The bland cover wasn't the only reason I decided to hold off on watching The Guest. The director-writer combo of Adam Wingard and Simon Barrett have worked together multiple times. Their first big hit was Your Next. Your Next is an awesome home invasion horror movie that I recommend. A little bit later, they worked on the new Blair Witch movie. If you've listened to the episode where I covered it, you know that I think it's a great, though unintentional, horror comedy. Now that I'm talking about the movies they've done together, I'm realizing... There was no reason for me to avoid the guest for so long, unless you count the Death Note adaptation. Yeah, Adam Winger directed that abysmal Death Note adaptation for Netflix. Luckily, Simon Barrett decided to have nothing to do with that landfill inferno. Well, I guess I've liked everything the duo has done together in some way or another. The Guest is a very entertaining movie. Dan Stevens plays David. I dogged on him a while back for his role in Apostle, which is another reason I put the guest on the back burner, but I think Dan plays the friendly and psychotic David quite well. He worked for me in the guest. I'd say that everyone but the dad worked. The dad is played by Leland Orser, who's supposed to be an alcoholic asshole, but comes off as more of a lovable alcoholic grouch like Mark Maron in Glow. Micah Monroe of It Follows Fame plays Anna, Ethan Embry plays the gun seller, and Joel David Moore plays the guy that knows the gun seller. Chase Williamson, who's been in Beyond the Gates and Sequence Break, which were covered in past episodes, plays the dirtbag boyfriend and isn't a great fit for the role, but doesn't do a terrible job. His character is framed for murder, and his acting when he reveals this fact wasn't very believable. He was way too chill about the situation. I did not expect to recognize so many people in the guest. I also didn't expect to have as much fun with it as I did. David is chaotic good. His pal didn't get a rightfully deserved promotion. He'll kill the guy who got it. Bullies being mean to his buddy. David will bash them up. He hears about how your boyfriend sucks. Good old Dave will frame him for murder. Sure, David is a killer, but he was mostly killing for the right reasons in the beginning. You know, helping his friends. 
You root for David until he kills the arms dealer and another dude. Sure, those two now corpses were technically criminals, but were they really hurting anyone, David? David loses his way after these kills and ends up murdering the family and even random people. I can't really condone you rolling two grenades into a diner to kill some people that watched you shoot a girl who kind of knew about your secret. The grenade scene is hilarious. There isn't a ton of gore in the movie. Most of the gore comes from bullets, which looks fine. Kat and I were pretty sure David was a Terminator, and I guess that wasn't technically disproved. He's totally a Terminator. Definitely check out the guest. I was a fool not to trust the Adam Wingard-Simon Barrett combo. When they are together, they make magic. Yes, I'm including the new Blair Witch in the magic category. That movie's hilarious. Number 3, The Ranger, 2018, directed by Jen Wexler. A young girl named Chelsea is in the care of a park ranger after an accident. Years later, Chelsea is hanging out with a group of drug-selling punks. Police show up. Chelsea is about to be arrested, but her boyfriend stabs the cop that has her cornered. Chelsea and the punks head to Chelsea's deceased uncle's cabin. Chelsea says he was killed by wolves. The ranger from when Chelsea was a kid is still there. The ranger kills everyone but Chelsea. Chelsea is captured. It's revealed that Chelsea killed her uncle. No motive is disclosed. The ranger is a serial killer who sometimes dresses up like a wolf. He made sure no one knew Chelsea killed her uncle. Chelsea kills the park ranger. Chelsea and the ranger are the killers. It's never revealed why Chelsea killed her uncle. It's also not super clear if she actually did. Or if the ranger killed the uncle and was lying. My understanding moving forward is that Chelsea killed her uncle when they were practicing shooting together just because she could. If I'm wrong, let me know. I saw a poster for this years ago at South by Southwest and have been hyped for it ever since. Did the ranger live up to the hype? Meh, not really. It's fine. I enjoyed it overall, but something was off. I'd say the acting is mostly fine. The script didn't give much for the actors to go off of. Almost all of the characters are unlikable. I warmed up to the happy punk couple the most. The two dudes, Jeremy Pope and Bubba Weiler, end up having way more depth and charisma than anyone else. Kudos to the diversity in this movie. You rarely see a male gay couple in horror. Chloe Levine plays old Chelsea and she's not bad. The character is though. Chelsea is one of the most bland final girls I've ever seen. Young Chelsea is played by Jete Lawrence, who went on to be Ellie in Pet Cemetery. Jeremy Holm plays the ranger and has the perfect look for the creepy authority figure. His acting is solid, and better writing would have definitely amplified his performance. Chelsea's terrible boyfriend is played by Granite LaHue, and he played the role of insufferable douchebag punk boyfriend incredibly well. The movie makes you hate him from the get-go, and you end up hating him more and more as the movie goes on. His comeuppance is gnarly and awesome. Wait. No, it wasn't. He just gets shot. Yep. That's it. A shot to the chest. 
This character that you're led to despise has the lamest death in the Ranger. If you're going to have a hate-inspiring character in your slasher, please make sure to have them horrifically murdered. Sure, the jerk boyfriend literally brings a knife to a gunfight, but that doesn't mean you can't do something besides just shooting him. A girl that tags along with the punks also gets dispatched by a bullet. Well, she's grazed by one. Being grazed by a bullet is kinda painful, so the other punks decide to put all the drugs into her body to help with the pain, which leads to her starting to OD. I got a splinter. Pass the hot stuff, please. It's possible that she got shot in the neck, but given how alive she is and the lack of an exit wound, I'm pretty sure it was only a graze. The ranger shows up and shoots her in the head to put her out of her misery. Our charismatic gay couple have the best deaths. One of the dudes gets caught in a bear trap, rips his foot out, and is then attacked by the ranger's fursona after finding the top half of his boyfriend, who was killed by a fire axe. Before the boyfriend is killed by the fire axe, he's in a gas station convenience store and grabs the weapon, which heavily reminded me of a similar scene in High Tension. It seems like an homage, but might just be a coincidence. The gore in the ranger is practical and strong, Chelsea bashes in the ranger's face with a pair of binoculars, which looks amazing for the most part. During one shot of this bludgeoning, you can see that one of the ranger's teeth was painted black to make it look like it was knocked out. Besides that shot, the tooth totally appeared to be missing. There are some interesting lines in the movie. A girl offers Chelsea a drug and says, it's better than coffee. I love coffee. I'd consider myself a caffeined but most things are better than coffee. My other favorite line from the movie is when the ranger, referring to Chelsea's dyed pink hair, says, Have you ever seen that color in nature? Um, yeah. Flowers, flamingos, pigs, coral reefs, naked mole rats, need I go on? Pink shows up in nature all the time. How do you not know that, Mr. Park Ranger? Even though the ranger isn't perfect and heavily drags once Chelsea and her boyfriend are the last ones left alive, it has heart. I'd recommend checking out the ranger if you have a Shudder subscription. It's entertaining enough. The writing is weak, but everything else works. I'm interested in seeing Jen Wexler direct a movie with a stronger script in the future. Number 4, Creepshow 1982, directed by George A. Romero. An abusive dad throws out his son's creep show comic book. A different cake-loving dad comes back from the dead to kill a bunch of people, starting with his daughter Bedelia, who murdered him. A bumpkin kills himself after a meteor he touched turns him into a human plant. A man named Richard drowns a couple who then come back to do the same to him as ghosts. A box containing a murderous creature is found and used by a husband to kill his wife. A grumpy old rich guy dies after being swarmed by cockroaches. We come back to the family and see the son stabbing a voodoo doll of his dad. Bedelia, her father, Richard, a creature in a crate, a disgruntled husband, and cockroaches are the killers. Creepshow is a movie by George A. Romero and Stephen King that was inspired by old horror comics. I don't normally do this, but I want to give some background on my viewing experience. 
Before deciding to watch Creepshow, I looked at the runtime, which said 120 minutes, and thought, oh nice, an hour and 20 minutes. That's doable at 11.15 p.m. This isn't the first time my brain decided to be a dummy and translate something like 120 minutes into one hour and 20 minutes. I remember this happening before when I watched Annihilation. I thought that movie was going to be crazy short, only to realize I mixed things up. Why does my brain do this? I think I figured it out. On IMDB, movie times are listed in hours and minutes. On Amazon, movies are listed in minutes. I spend a lot of time looking at movies on IMDB, so I always assume that a runtime will be shown in hours and minutes instead of just minutes. You've been listening to Josh Baker Exposed. The new Probably Boring segment was added to just let y'all know that I was crazy tired during the tail end of my creep show viewing. Let's go segment by segment, shall we? The movie starts off with Father's Day. I didn't love this one, but did enjoy dear old dead dad coming back and requesting cake. It's like cake is all the bony bastard could think about in life and death. The makeup for zombie dad wasn't incredible. The way his mouth moves looked off. I thought it was strange to start off with such a weak segment, especially after we saw a much better looking living skeleton used in the prologue. The second segment is The Lonesome Death of Jordy Verrill. This one was fun to watch mainly because it stars Stephen King as a bumpkin whose body is being covered in plants. King's campy acting is perfect and makes this segment a lot of fun. One big gripe I have with it is the suicide. Once King is fully covered in plants, he blows his head off with a shotgun. This looks terrible. Seeing as his body is fully covered, they could have actually blown up a head and had soil, seeds, and other forms of plant viscera fly everywhere. But none of that happens. The head just disappears. The greatest segment is the third one, something to tide you over. Leslie Nielsen kills his cheating wife and her lover Ted Danson in ridiculous over-the-top supervillain fashion. He buries both of them in the sand on different parts of a beach and then lets Ted watch as his lover drowns on a TV while the tide starts coming towards him also. Ted and the lover then come back and do the same thing to Leslie, which is hilarious. The makeup for Drowned Ghost Ted and the Wife didn't look amazing, but I absolutely loved watching Leslie Nielsen and Ted Danson's campy back and forth banter. At one point when Ted Danson is buried up to his neck in sand, he yells at a crab, and it's one of the most hilarious things I've ever seen. Another funny moment is Leslie Nielsen getting out of the shower and drying off on high alert. Picture that. Leslie Nielsen drying off on high alert. Next up is the crate, which I found to be the weakest of the bunch. I think I would have liked this segment more if the pushover husband and wife that's mean to him were left out. Just because your wife is mean to you doesn't mean you can feed her to a box monster, especially when you make no attempt to talk to her about your feelings and bottle everything up. I hated the husband and wish he was torn limb from limb by the crate ape. The ape attacks are fun, but Mr. Wimpy straight up murdered my ability to enjoy the segment. The final segment is they're creeping up on you, and it's one of the most horrifying things I've ever seen. 
I have to believe that this segment holds the record for the most living cockroaches on screen. If I see a cockroach in real life, I go into full-on panic mode like any rational person does. I don't know how much E.G. Marshall was paid to be the rich guy who has to be in a room with and covered in so many cockroaches, but I can assure you that it wasn't enough. Just thinking about the writhing masses of cockroaches shown in this segment puts me on edge. One thing I never needed to see was roaches bursting out of a corpse. I complain about movies using CGI insects. Hell, I just complained about it in Green Inferno. The ant scene in that movie was laughable. The cockroaches in Creepshow, scarring. Their creeping up on you is one of the most disturbing shorts I've ever seen. 20,000 cockroaches were provided for that. Of course, that was the last thing I saw before bed, so I thought I was going to have buggy nightmares. Besides the yeesh-inducing amount of cockroaches, there is also a really cool back and forth between the rich guy and maintenance guy through a peephole that is visually unique and awesome. I like this segment even though it totally skeeves me out. As a whole, I enjoyed Creepshow. I didn't find it amazing, but I had a lot of fun watching the campy acting. There is some amazing gore like the head cake in Father's Day and mauled wife in the crate. Tom Savini was involved, so obviously there are great gore effects. One thing I really dug was the use of harsh color lighting and backdrops that made shots look like they came right out of a comic book. Creepshow isn't perfect and has some weak segments, but it's worth checking out. Fun fact, the kid who gets slapped by his dad in the beginning actually slaps himself for that shot and was played by Stephen King's son, Joe. Number 5, The Endless, 2017, directed by Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead. Two brothers, Justin and Aaron, go back to a cult they escaped. It's been years since they left, but everyone looks the same. Some presence is causing time loops in that area. At the end of a loop, everyone in the area is killed by the presence and can never leave. Justin and Aaron escape before the loop ends. The presence is the killer. After seeing multiple trailers for The Endless a few years ago, I had no interest in watching the movie. Luckily for me, I finally gave in and watched it after seeing people praise it online. I don't know how I feel about cosmic horror because I haven't really seen enough to have an informed opinion. I've seen Event Horizon, Annihilation, and Cabin in the Woods, which seem to be considered cosmic horror. I don't really agree with the last one being in that category, but I liked all of those movies. I didn't like The Void, but I don't think that was due to it being cosmic horror. What this rambling is trying to get at is the fact that I need to watch more horror in the cosmic genre. The Endless was an intriguing watch. I knew from the get-go that the cult was stuck in time in some way or another, but knowing that didn't detract from my enjoyment or sense of discovery as the movie went on. The acting starts off rough, but became more organic once the brothers arrived back at the cult. Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead, the directors and writer, play Justin and Aaron, which is probably why they are the weakest actors of the bunch. There are multiple points in The Endless where the quality of their acting dips. 
Their performances are very wooden before getting to the cult, and at times their reactions to what they see and what happens aren't believable. I find it kind of weird when a writer or director or both decides to also star in their movie. It sounds like they starred in the movie for budget reasons, which I can respect, but it's still weird that they decided to be two of the most prominent characters. I wrote, directed, and acted in my short film, The Bloody Reuben, but I was only in the short because I couldn't find someone else that was willing to be the naked roommate that's jacking it. All the other actors in The Endless were fine with no real standouts. I didn't dig the low saturation color palette of the film, but I also didn't find it distracting once the brothers arrived at the cult camp. The low saturation and spotty acting are my only real complaints. The rest of the movie is really well done. The mystery surrounding exactly what's going on is great and unraveled just enough to be satisfying without giving away too much. The presence that appears to control everything in the loop areas is never shown on screen or explained. Instead, we see strange drawings of what it could look like from one of the cult members and watch other members view a video recording of a loop ending without the viewer getting to see it. Watching the cult members freak out while watching the tape as you hear sounds of people being ripped apart is the perfect way to capture the horror without actually showing it. There's no way they could have shown the presence as a creature and actually got it right. Well, technically it would have been possible for an amazing creature to be shown, but it would have been risky and unnecessary to show one. Another movie that I covered in the past called The Ritual showed its creature front and center, and it mostly worked even though it wasn't perfect. The creature shown in that movie could have easily been awful and ruined the ending. There is so much room for error when it comes to capturing an otherworldly, unexplainable entity on screen. Definite kudos to The Endless for how they got around actually showing the creature thing, or whatever the presence actually is. If you're a fan of strange cosmic horror movies, seek out The Endless. I think most horror fans will like this one. If all you're looking for is blood and guts splattered everywhere, you're not going to love this one. Number 6, Monsters 2010, directed by Gareth Edwards. A man named Aaron has to escort his boss's daughter, Sam, from Mexico to the United States. There is an infected zone that's inhabited by aliens between the two countries that the unlikely duo must traverse after they can't afford safe passage due to Aaron getting robbed. Aaron and Sam make it to America alone after an encounter with aliens kills men who were helping them. The US military shows up, picks up the duo, and riles an alien which then attacks everyone. Some of the soldiers are killed and Sam might be dead. The aliens are the killers. It's stated that the United States military is also causing a lot of death in Mexico by using bombers and chemicals to attack the aliens but we don't explicitly see the US military kill anyone. The movie title, Monsters, does appear to refer to the US though. This isn't a horror movie, it's more of an immigration drama. Allegedly, Gareth Edwards, who not only directed but also wrote the movie, didn't plan on Monsters being an allegory for immigration, which I find a little hard to believe. The movie is called Monsters, 
is on Shudder and includes aliens that kill people, so I'm still counting it as horror light for the podcast. Monsters was made for way less than $500,000. I've been hearing people praise Monsters for years solely on the fact that it was made on a low budget and looks like a big budget movie. How did the movie stay under budget? Commercial filming equipment was used. Most of the extras were real people that were just there. Oh, and all the creatures and military stuff you see, all that was done using CGI. That CGI must have been pretty expensive still, right? Well, you see, Gareth Edwards did it all. I know, that's insane. I could tell that the military vehicles and some other random things were CGI, but for being worked on by only one person, the visual effects work is pretty incredible. I enjoyed watching monsters from the perspective of a wannabe filmmaker. What about the perspective of someone just looking for a fun movie? I didn't entirely love it. I found it to drag a bit, but I think that's mostly my fault. I had the wrong expectations. I thought monsters would have a lot more action and... monsters. To be fair, the movie only needed to show two aliens to live up to the title. There could have even been zero aliens, since the US is basically portrayed as monsters. You see that the aliens can be chill when not perturbed. At the tail end of the movie, two aliens are having what I believe was a steamy makeout session. Aaron and Sam act as voyeurs to the tentacled kissing, and the aliens don't even attempt to brutally murder them. Glorbglop, we should get a room. Those pervy humans are gawking at us. As long as humans aren't waving their big guns around, the aliens don't seem to be aggressive. Well, except that alien who decimates the guys that were helping Aaron and Sam get to the border. That one seemed to attack unprovoked. Maybe it was trying to sleep and was annoyed by the bright lights the humans had on. The gore in this movie mostly consists of blood-covered corpses, which look okay. The acting is solid from everyone except two disembodied phone voices that sound like cartoon characters. Aaron and Sam were played by real-life couple Scoot McNary and Whitney Abel. Gareth Edwards wanted a real couple, even though in the beginning of the movie, Whitney is engaged to someone other than Aaron. Scoot and Whitney are great. There was a lot of room for improvisation since there wasn't any written dialogue. The actors were only given outlines for what the characters needed to hit. If you're interested in low-budget filmmaking, you need to check out Monsters. It's an interesting drama with great locations that happens to also have octopus-crab hybrid aliens in it. I hope that in the future, Gareth Edwards writes another movie. Monsters was such a success that Edwards ended up only directing Godzilla 2014 and Rogue One, both of which aren't nearly as memorable as Monsters. Number 7. Horror Elements in Movies I've Seen Recently I thought it would be fun to talk about some movies I've seen recently that aren't horror movies, but had a little taste of horror in them. I'll start things off with John Wick 3, Parabellum. Parabellum means prepare for war. I didn't know that before seeing the movie. Is that Latin that everybody knows? I wouldn't be surprised if I'm a ding-dong that somehow has never heard a common Latin phrase. Anyway, I think Keanu Reeves and Tom Hanks need to have a nice dude off for best most lovable nice dude. I think Keanu can take Hanks. 
When it comes to the John Wick series, I loved the first one, didn't entirely dig the second one, and enjoyed the third installment quite a bit. I had some minor issues with John Wick 3. The biggest issue is probably that the fights I consider the best in the film are mostly towards the beginning. All the action is great, but some of the fights are so over the top and creative in the beginning that the action sequences towards the end feel anticlimactic. Since this isn't a spoiler for anyone that has seen the second movie, John Wick is excommunicado and a bounty is placed on his head. The bounty starts off as 14 million in John Wick 3. Y'all know John Wick isn't going to be taken out easily, so after a bit of time passes, the bounty is raised to a whopping 15 million. Yep, a $1 million increase. Kill John Wick? For $14 million? That's rich. I'm going to sit in my raggedy recliner and watch a magical girl anime instead of going out there to be cannon fodder. Wait, what? The bounty has been raised to $15 million? Now you're talking, where's my battle axe? Adding a million dollars to the bounty isn't going to persuade someone who wasn't interested before into pursuing John Wick. You can't spend $15 million after being killed by a pencil. What was the point of this section? Oh yeah, mini spoiler. In John Wick 3, there is a steady close-up shot of John forcing a knife into a man's eyeball. The whole theater cringed. I feel like eye stabbings are a staple in horror, so it was neat to see the ocular destruction in an action movie. I guess John Wick has a lot in common with a slasher villain. He's an unstoppable killing force that at times seems inhuman. Another movie I saw recently was Detective Pikachu. All I wanted was fan service and Pokemon, so I liked it a lot. If you aren't a Pokemon fan, I doubt you'll dig Detective Pikachu all that much, if at all. There's a Pokemon called Apum. Apum is a cute little purple monkey thing with a big hand at the end of its tail. Well, cute when it's not in live action. And Detective Pikachu, a troop of Apoms, a group of monkey regardless of which species is called a troop. A troop of Apoms go ape dookie and start chasing the lead character. The Apoms look absolutely horrifying in this movie, so the whole chase reminded me a lot of Gremlins. If I was a little kid who witnessed this Apom assault, I'd probably make my parents check my room for the furry demons before I'd be able to sleep. I don't remember seeing any bug-type Pokemon in Detective Pikachu. That's probably because they'd be terrifying. I hope to see more movies add a dash of horror. Before I end this section, I also wanted to talk about a horror movie called Ma that's coming out soon, that I've already seen a ton of times. It was okay. It's a little short at around 2 minutes in length, and it seemed like a lot of things were cut out. This is a horrible joke about how the Ma trailer is literally the entire movie. If you haven't seen the Ma trailer, don't. Thanks for tuning in to Blank is the Killer, 45 Tribal Cannibals, Deadly Guests, and Time Death. If every episode counted as a year this show was alive, it would be old enough to have a midlife crisis. If you enjoyed what you heard, leave a rating on iTunes. I know no one listens to the end of podcasts, so if you actually hear this, why not send something to blankisthekiller at gmail.com. A question, a comment, a critique, anything you want. As always, a big shout out to Sticker Fridge for hosting the podcast on their website. 
Check out other podcasts on the network like Director Showdown. Blank is the Killer will be back on June 2nd. Until then, make sure not to tell that new friend in your life that you suspect them of committing murder, or they might commit more. Meaning, they might commit a murder on you. And no one really wants murder to be committed on them.